Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. Speaking of uh, relationships and relating, relating to God is probably one of the most challenging things a human can do. By his very nature, he's greater than us, bigger than us, beyond anything that we can really begin to understand. And so to help us learn how to relate to God, the Bible gives us all these different metaphors, excuse me, different metaphors to help us understand the relationship between God and us. For example, it speaks of God as a creator and we as his creation. Speaks of God, the Bible speaks of God as a parent, as a father, and sometimes as a mother, and then us as children. The Bible speaks of God as a shepherd and we his sheep. The Bible speaks of God as a potter and you and I the clay. And the Bible speaks of God as ultimately our judge, and you and I as defendant. And one of the things that these examples have in common is this, is that in each and every one of these cases there is hierarchy, meaning one is greater than the other. In each of these examples, God is always above us, greater than us, bigger than us. And in each of these examples, God is calling us to submit to him as the greater and serve him. There's one metaphor that I've left out that we're going to bring up now. And it's hard for us as humans to receive this one. It's difficult. And so we probably don't spend as much time talking about this metaphor as we do some of the others. And that is the metaphor of master and servant. God is our master and us as his servant. In this parable, in Luke chapter 17, Jesus borrows the concept of master and slave or servant from the world in which he was living. This was a very common arrangement to have what was known as a bond servant. A person may find themselves in financial difficulty. Maybe they're indebted to a a bank or to another person, and someone could buy that person out of their debts And that person would then be indebted or bonded to serve that person for a period of time. And this was very common. In fact, you see Jesus say to his disciples who were blue-collar, normal guys, which one of you having a servant? Meaning it was very normal for someone who was blue-collar in that day to have a servant, at least one in their home. And so Jesus is borrowing this idea of servant and master to show us one way that we are called to relate to God. It reminds me how Paul said later to the church in Corinth when he said, you are not your own. If you are a Christian, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. You see, being a Christian means that you are owned, not owed. We live in an entitled world where we think that we are owed something by somebody all the time. And when we become a Christian, that means that we are people who are now owned by Jesus Christ, not owed anything. 
This term servant, in fact, bondservant, which was a um, lowly, low-class word that was used in this time, it was Jesus was using it, was actually taken by the first century Christians and used as the title of honor and dignity as a believer in Jesus Christ. Paul, over and over, called himself a bond servant of Jesus Christ. And he did so with great respect. And so in this parable, in Luke chapter 18, I want to draw out what it means to live as a servant of Jesus Christ. That's really what he's trying to drive us to, is to understand how we become and what it's like to live as a servant of of God. And we're going to start, first of all, with the activity of a servant. What sort of actions does he get involved in, or he or she get involved with? And you'll see in this parable that this one servant that Jesus is describing wears a lot of different things. He's very, very busy, right? This person's busy. And so what we see is, in fact, this servant is involved in many different things. He goes from being a farmer to a shepherd to a chef, and to a waiter. Do you see that? He says, which one of you having a servant out in the field, plowing the field, or tending to the sheep, when he comes in, tells him to sit down and relax? No, you tell that servant to go into the kitchen, and then that servant starts cooking food, and his job then isn't done. Then he is waiting and serving upon the master while he eats and drinks. You see, he's fully explaining that this servant does many different things. When he comes in from the field, he stops one job and starts a totally different job. When figuring out what to do, the servant asks one question, what needs done? He doesn't say, well, listen, my um, ability really is in the, the I'm, I'm really good with the sheep and I'm not, I don't really like the kitchen so much, so I'll go do the sheep thing, but not the kitchen thing. He doesn't say that. When he comes in, his attitude is, master, where? And master, what? What needs to be done? Here am I. I'm willing to serve. The servant also doesn't just do many things. He works in many places. When he is called in from the field, it says, he comes into the house, he goes from the field to the kitchen. From the kitchen, he then moves to the dining room. You see, being a servant is not a part you play in life, but it's actually a life that you live. We move, you and I, will move through different places in our life. You might move through uh, actually different cities. You might move to different congregations of the Lord's body. You might move to different places. You might even, you will, whether you like it or not, move through different seasons of your life. And as you move from one place to the next, the question is, do you stop serving? So if you're here in Pickerington right now and you're serving in a particular role and then God calls you to live in a different location, when you move to that location and somebody is already doing the job you used to do, do you stop serving? No. You're called in from the field, maybe to the kitchen, and maybe from the kitchen to serve in the dining room. And when you go to these different places, you don't stop serving, you keep serving. God has moved all of us through different seasons of our life. And as you move through different seasons, you keep serving. I think about some special servants like Alan and Rachel Gillespie are with us, who serve and labor our young people right now. And that may be because it's very important to them. Their children are in our youth group. And God may, which I hope he doesn't, when they graduate, you guys keep going, but if God moves them out of that season, they don't stop serving just because maybe they're out of that season. They keep serving. 
And when he called, when the master calls this servant in from the field, he says, I want you to keep serving in a different place. So I ask you, as you've moved from different places, do you keep serving? The second thing this parable brings up is not just the activity of the servant, but the attention, who the servant is paying attention to. This servant has a lot to do, and he interacts with a lot of different people, but there's only one person that has captured his attention. You see, the object of this servant, pardon me, is the attention of of his master. That's who he's paying attention to. When he's working in the field, the field is not who he pays attention to. When he's working with the sheep, the sheep are not who he is giving all of his attention to, or even the guests. You see, in serving in the field, or serving the sheep, or serving the guests in the dining room, he's really serving the master. For all of those things, the field, the sheep, the guests that are there are all part of the master's life. And what the servant is paying attention to is the master. That's who he's worried about. That's who he's concerned about. And when you and I serve here in this local body, whether it's writing get well cards to people or teaching in a Bible class or moving somebody with the crew for Christ, whatever way that you serve or going on a mission trip, you're going to interact with and serve and care for many different people, but ultimately, the person you serve is Jesus Christ. You notice what he says there um, when he's telling this parable. If you read with me in Luke chapter 17, he says in verse 8, Will he not rather say, this is what the master says, Prepare supper for me and dress properly, which means to prepare yourself to be a servant, and serve me while I eat and drink. You see, the master wants the servant's attention on him. And one of the craftiest things that Satan will ever do is take your attention in your service away from God to other things. If you take your attention away from God and you start paying attention to people, you'll become frustrated because maybe people won't uh, give you the kind of credit that you want. Or maybe you'll become frustrated because people don't respond the way you want them to respond. Or if you take your attention from the master and you start thinking about yourself, you'll turn your service into either buying heaven with your service because you're thinking about yourself, or earning attention or praise from other people, both which are serving yourself and not God. It reminds me of a story a long, long time ago of a man who was a farmer. And this was many, many years ago, and he was a farmer. He was a very dedicated farmer, but he was a lowly uh, peasant farmer in a certain village. And he was uh, just a vegetable farmer, and he grew this carrot, and he pulls this carrot out of the ground, and it is the biggest and greatest carrot that he's ever grown. And he looks at this thing, and he's just in awe of it. And so he takes it to his king, and he presents it before his king. He says, King, this is the greatest thing that I've ever produced. And you are great, and you are honorable, and out of reverence and respect for you, I'd like to give you the greatest thing that I've ever produced. Here's this carrot. And as the man turns, he's being dismissed, and he's walking out, the king tells him to stop. And he says, sir, you live so-and-so on so-and-so hill. And he says, yes, I do. And he says, I own a large piece of property right next to you, and I'd like you to have it. And I'd like you to farm that field. And the man was in awe, and he went away, and he began to farm that field. Well, sitting in the courtroom there was one of the dignitaries of the king, and he overheard this, and he thought, man, you get acreage for a carrot? What could I get? So he goes home, and he has horses, 
And he gets his best stallion, and he walks into the courtyard of the king, and he brings the king. He says, Sir king, my great king, I love you and respect you. This is the greatest horse that I've ever raised. Here, you may have this horse. And the king goes, Thank you. And he's kind of, you know, flustered, and he's wondering, What am I going to get for this? And he is dismissed, and he turns around, and he's kind of questioning, and he's looking, and the king stops, and he says, The man yesterday was giving me the carrot, but today you're giving yourself the horse. Do you understand? Who are you paying attention to when you serve? This service, this labor that you're giving is for God. Third thing, the activity of the servant, he's busy, many places doing many different things. His attention is the master and the master alone. But what Jesus is really trying to drive home is the attitude of the servant. The attitude. That's really what this whole story is about. Which of you having a servant, how should he think is what he's really trying to say. And so a genuine servant is actually known for their humility. Okay, that's what this genuine servant here is really known. This humility is shaped by two things. Let me tell you what these two things are. First of all, it's shaped by the servant's view of their work. Now twice when Jesus is telling this parable... He says, he uses the word commanded to describe what the servant is doing. He says, which of the servants being commanded to do these things or commanded to do that? And that literally means to be prescribed by your master certain tasks to accomplish. And let me tell you, there's nothing wrong with that word at all. It's a great word. We absolutely should be commanded by one who is greater than us to do certain things. And you have been commanded by God to follow and serve him. But when it gets to the end, Jesus speaking for the servant, trying to, to, trying to teach us what attitude we're supposed to have, he says, here's what the servant should say. We're unworthy servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Now, why doesn't the servant with this proper attitude say, I just did what I was commanded to do? Why doesn't he say that? It was a commandment, and he followed the commandment. But duty is different than commandment. Same actions, different attitude. This servant has a view of his work as a duty, which means a deep, indebted moral obligation out of how good the master has been to him that he says, I ought to do this. I have to do this because my master has been so good to me, I am returning back to him what is morally right to give to him. It's only right that I offer him my service. It's my duty to do this. Duty has sort of lost its luster in our culture. We frown upon the idea of duty. We see it as joyless routine or unsatisfying obligation or a guilt trip or a burden. Duty is the highest honor of serving someone you believe is worthy of it or serving a cause you believe is worthy of it. And if you believe God is worth it, and his work is worth it, you'll give yourself to that in honor of God because he's worth it. It'll be duty to you, and there's nothing wrong with that. So the genuine servant has humility because of the view of his work, but also the way he views himself, the way you view yourself matters. Now you notice what, the, what Jesus iterates here about the servant. When he finishes his work, Jesus says, here's what the servant says. I am unworthy. 
also slightly unpopular today to think this. Now, Jesus in his teachings only uses this word twice in the whole New Testament, in the Gospels. The first one is in Matthew chapter 25, when he's telling the parable about two different groups of people, one group that was active in serving, and another group that wasn't active in serving, and he was separating those who were active in serving. He said, come into the uh, joy of the kingdom. But those who were not serving, he dismissed them as unworthy servants meaning that they did not live up to what they were supposed to do. Here, though, what he's saying, it sounds almost like the servant when he says, no, master, we're unworthy of you. It sounds almost like exaggerated humility, almost, almost unhealthy to think this way about yourself. And there are many people who have a very, very unhealthy view of themselves. And that's not what Jesus is prescribing here. That is not what he's teaching. If you have an unhealthy, negative view of yourself, you need to think through that and work through that with somebody, possibly, who can help you. That's not a good thing. But here's what he's talking about. What he really means when he says unworthy is this idea that I know that I have added nothing to you because you are so great. You see, this idea of unworthy means that you have been so gracious to me, you have been so good to me, you are so powerful, you are so masterful. That what I bring to the table is just my existence because of who you are. Servants of God, hear this, have humility in light of God's greatness, not their personal weakness. You see, a lot of this unhealthy thought about ourselves and a lot of this uh, exaggerated humility that exists in our world today is actually born out of our personal weaknesses. We look in the mirror and we hate what we see. We wish we were better at certain things. We wish we looked differently. We wish we had certain things. And when we don't have certain abilities or certain things in our life, we don't like that, so we say to ourselves, we're unworthy. That's not this kind of humility. This kind of humility is born out of seeing the greatness of God, not just the weakness of self. It's a God-honoring humility. It's born out of awe of God's grace towards us. They know, this person knows that they are unworthy, but it's born out of gratitude because you see him as the only one worthy of giving your life to. Sure, there are other options that you could give your life to, but no greater master in this world than the master of Jesus Christ. None greater. You see, this principle of giving yourself to a master to become a servant is actually not a new concept that Jesus thought of. He might have thought of it before the time he was on earth, probably did. But this is actually rooted back in the Old Testament in the law of Moses. In Exodus chapter 21, uh, the Bible there has um, instruction on how to interact with servants and slaves. He says, if a person buys a Hebrew slave, that person is supposed to serve them for six years. And whatever they come in with, they leave with. And after six years, they go free. But there's a provision in that law. At the end of that law, he's describing how the servant can go free. That servant has an option. He can look at life and say, my master is so good and so gracious. In fact, I wouldn't want to live my life without my master as my master. And that servant has a choice. He can say, or she can say, I am going to stay with my master. And if they make that choice, they're there forever for the rest of their life. 
And if that servant looked at the master and said, this master is good, gracious, kind, I wouldn't want to live my life with anybody else other than this master, ceremonially they would take the servant and they would take an owl or, a, or like a nail and they would take the ear of the servant and hold it up to the post of the door. And they would take a hammer and they would drive that nail through, they would pierce that servant's ear to the door and there would be a ceremony marking forever service from the servant to the master. This only happened when the servant who was, will, who was able to go free would look at the master and say, you are too good to leave. So what about us? As God presents before us an opportunity to be his servant, to be his forever, are we going to make that choice? You see, he doesn't just make a proposition like, I'll give you certain things. He lays before us not a proposition, but a person. A master, a ruler, the one who's going to be your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he shows him not just as a great master, but the ultimate servant. Remember what Jesus said? I didn't come to this earth to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom. Jesus Christ is the ultimate servant, giving his life fully to a cause that's greater than himself, giving his life in love to care for graciously people who have spurned him and left him. And he says, listen, the burden that you wear, the, the, the debt that you owe that you cannot pay, I'll pay that debt for you. I'll buy you back. And you get the opportunity to see how great of a master he is and say, take me to your doorpost and pierce my ear. I'll be your servant the rest of my life. Wherever I go, whatever I do, I'm yours. And if that opportunity is something you want to take advantage of today, we make that available. We're going to stand and sing this very song with Alan right now. So let's stand and sing. If you have a need, you can come.